Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Oscar Wilde once said, conversation about the weather is the last refuge of the unimaginative. (laughs) Sometimes talking about the weather is code for awkward, boring small talk, isn't it? Uh, My worst grade in college at UGA actually came in a science class called Weather and Climate. It was supposed to be really easy. And after the uh, time passed where you could drop the class, the professor was like, I know you signed up for this thinking it was easy, and it was not, but it was dreadfully boring, for sure. Um, But our weather hasn't been boring at all. It's been fun. It's been wild. I mean, just last Sunday after church, we finally loaded the last thing into the trailer, began driving away, and the skies opened. Thunder crashed. Lightning struck. Uh, Miss Dixie texted me, who could ever doubt God's omnipotence after that storm. Storms, huge storms are awe-inspiring. They're powerful, and our dog thinks they're pretty scary. Here in Athens, it has been a stormy summer. Um, I was a little worried we'd have a storm today, but all of this means that you are now perfectly prepared for Matthew 14, our gospel reading where a storm uh, is featured. In fact, the stormy weather around the Sea of Galilee is featured throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And those who lived there were keenly aware of the weather. Most of them were fishermen. So they made their living on the sea. So if you make your living on the sea, you pay attention to the wind and the rain and the storms and what you think is happening. This is the third time in Matthew's Gospel that the weather plays a key role in what Matthew is trying to teach us. Uh, He's trying to teach us both about the Lord Jesus and about our faith or lack thereof. So uh, let's get our bearings a little bit. Um, Our context today, our passage, is firmly embedded in a sequence of events. Um, You see the sequence in Matthew. You see the same sequence in Mark. You see the sequence essentially in John's gospel as well. Matthew 14 starts with bad news. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded by Herod. And so in response to that, Matthew 14, verse 13 says, When Jesus heard this, he withdrew to a desolate place by himself. He's trying to retreat. He's trying to regroup. He needs to grieve and spend time with the Father, but Matthew says, when the crowds heard it, they followed him. So instead of being able to get away and get some space, uh, we see one of Jesus' most famous miracles in Matthew 14. He uh, takes meager rations. He's on what's called the Mount of Multiplication by the Sea of Galilee, and he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And that's the context for this. If you look at verse 22, The first word is immediately. It links us to this. It links us to what has gone before. Um, And what we see is that immediately he sends the disciples ahead of him in the boat. He's finally going to pull back, get that time for prayer, retreat and regroup, and then he's going to go 
and meet the disciples. And so you can imagine Jesus is up on this mountain. Um, actually, where they would have been, it could have been like actually the hill where the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. This is all right there, clustered together along the Sea of Galilee. And then the camera pans to the disciples. Uh, these seasoned, many of them fishermen, and Matthew 14, 24 says, that if you see this, the boat by this time was a long way from the land. They've gone out onto the sea. They're crossing the sea. And the boat is beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, and it was dark. That's the scene. That sets us up for what's going to happen. The wind was against them. Darkness shrouds the water. They are rowing furiously, uh, but getting nowhere. And so that's the scene for Jesus' walking on the water, and of course also Peter um, walking for a bit on the water. But I want to point something out before we go on. Uh, the Gospels are filled with literal storms, but they often teach us about the storms that we all face in life. Um, you see this again and again where storms are used uh, this way. Uh, recently, we've been in the book of Romans. We've been talking about the role of suffering in the Christian life. What do we do when we suffer? When, not if. That's what we see in the book of Romans. And the storms of life are similar. When, not if. When the storms come, not if they come. But this is interesting. Here, <laughs> Jesus actually sends them into the storm. He sends them into the storm purposefully because he has something to teach them. Matthew 14, 1, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat, go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Sometimes we are coasting along, and it feels like storms come upon us out of nowhere. Um, last Monday, I remember walking out to my car. It was sunny. It was beautiful. I started driving home, and within five minutes, boom, out of nowhere. That's what happens sometimes, but here... Jesus intentionally sends them on a collision course with this storm. And sometimes he does that in our life as well. Here's the first thing I want you to know from this passage. Sometimes Jesus sends us into the storm when he wants to show us something new about himself. To teach us something new about himself. And again, this isn't the first storm in Matthew's gospel. Six chapters before this in Matthew 8... Jesus and the disciples are on the boat. They're on the same sea. And Matthew writes, there arose a great storm on the sea. Uh, one translation actually says, there arose a furious squall, which I like. That's a little more poetic than a great storm. Do you remember that? Jesus is taking a nap in the boat, and they come like, Lord, don't you, don't you care that it's storming? And he stands up, and he just rebukes the wind and the waves, and shuts it down instantly. And the response of the disciples, they're marveled. And they say, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And I want to suggest that what Matthew is doing is beginning to answer that lingering question. You've seen the power of Jesus instilling the storm. And now he's going to teach them something new. He's going to show them something about his divinity they never could have imagined. So think of it. Jesus says they're out on the water, and he comes to them walking on the sea. This chaotic, dark water. Um, 
I would suggest that this entire scene is, is drenched in imagery from the Old Testament intentionally. Uh, Jesus is, in this passage, uh, doing signature moves that belong to God himself and God alone. Being over the water in this way. Think about Genesis 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I mean, they even think when they see Jesus, is this a ghost? Is it it a spirit? The Spirit's above the waters. This is not merely a fancy or convenient means of transportation. Jesus wants to teach them about his divinity. Uh, There's a passage in the Exodus where the Israelites are thinking about how uh, they got to the Red Sea and it was parted and they walked through on dry land. And the psalmist, reflecting on that, says, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. There's something about the water and God's action there. Whether it's over the water, through the water, or even in Jonah's case, under the water, God is at work in significant ways. Um, Our psalm today talked about the voice of the Lord is above the waters. The Lord is king enthroned above the waters. And much of this comes together in the book of Job. Job is trying to figure out just how big and vast and incomprehensible the Lord is. And here's what it says in Job chapter 9. He, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves. He tramples on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Here's what's interesting. Jesus is doing these things that were characteristic moves of the Lord, but he's not doing it to veil who he is. It's time to show them who he actually is. So instead of When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. God now, in his kindness here, wants us to see, wants us to perceive. He's showing them something new about himself. One scholar says, by providing for the crowd, so that miracle of the 5,000, Jesus showed himself greater than a human magician, just healing some individuals or turning stones into bread. At the least, following that, Jesus was a prophet like Moses or Elijah. But by treading on the sea, Jesus now takes a role that the Hebrew Bible had reserved for God alone. Similarly, another scholar, what matters is not that Jesus has done the seemingly impossible, but that he has performed action which the Old Testament associates with the Lord alone. He's trying to show them something of his divinity. He wants them to catch it. And just in case they don't get it, his first words to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That it is I in Greek is ego eimi. John plays with that all through his gospel. I am. This is the divine name of God. When Moses is before the burning bush, who are you? I am. Ego eimi. He wants them to know exactly who he is. And he's not trying to show off. His miracles here and throughout the gospel were a supernatural display of power 
that signaled the coming of God to save and the coming of God among them. Jesus sent them into the storm and he went out walking on the water because he wanted to reveal his glory to his friends. Their initial response is actually fascinating. Matthew tells us when they saw him, they were terrified. Not when they saw the storm. When they saw him, they they were frustrated by the storm, the winds and the wave being against them, but they were terrified of Jesus and were confused. I think Matthew is giving us a hint that as violent as the storm was outside the boat, there's a storm churning inside each one of these disciples. So they cry out in fear. This isn't a mere ghost story. They're starting to realize just how glorious and how holy Jesus is. The marvelous man that the winds and the waves obey, the one walking on the water, a signature move in the Hebrew Bible reserved for God himself and God alone. And whenever we see or get a glimpse of God and his holiness in the scriptures, we are both drawn to it and want to run away from it. You see that all through. Think about Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, the train of his robe filled the temple. And and you're like, yes, I want to move towards that. He goes, woe is me. I have unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We're drawn to it and then we don't know what to do. So we're tempted to run away from the presence of God when we realize his holiness. We realize his goodness and his beauty. Sometimes Jesus sends us into the storm when he wants to show us something new about himself. Here's the second thing. Sometimes Jesus sends us into the storm when he wants to show us something new about ourselves. That's the next part of this passage. See, earlier, Jesus has clearly displayed his power over storms. He had told the wind and the waves to be still. But here we get this episode with Peter. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Um, Jesus rolls out the red carpet on the water, if you will, and invites Peter out. Um, And we can get really fixated on the actual walking on water. I think it's more interesting to say, in what sense does Jesus invite us to do what he does? He's inviting Peter to do what he's doing, uh, empowered by the Lord. You don't read in the rest of the New Testament, and then they sought ways to walk on the water. You don't see the Apostle Paul going, I was shipwrecked, but it was okay, because I knew if I jumped out, I could run across the water. That's not the point. We can get a little fixated on that. The point is that Jesus invites Peter to do what he's doing in this moment. And Jesus does that with you and I as well. We're invited to do the things that Jesus does. We're invited, as Romans 8 told us last week, God is doing a work in us to conform us to the image of his son, to make us like Jesus forever. So Jesus rolls out the red carpet, come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came to Jesus, but you're like, oh no. Here it is. Peter, the highest highs and lowest lows always in the Gospels. What happens? It says that Peter looked at the storm, essentially. 
He takes his eyes off Jesus and he looks, what am I doing? How can this be? Look at this danger. Look at this situation. He takes his focus off Jesus and fixates on the storm. And that's when he begins to sink. He begins to sink. And to his credit, when he begins to sink, he does exactly what he should do. He cries out to Jesus for help. Lord, save me. And of course, Jesus rescues him. Uh, There's a gentle rebuke after. uh, But Jesus always saves before he teaches and scolds and molds. They get into the boat. The storm stopped, and Jesus took them to the shore immediately. The lesson had been learned. (laughs) They had seen what they needed to see. And so Jesus uh, sends them on. And the disciples say, oh, truly, you are the Son of God. That question lingering, (laughs) who is this marvelous man that even the waves and the winds obey him? That's like a book into this. Truly, you are the Son of God. Fully man, fully God, able to save. And the tensions are interesting here. And what happens with Peter? I mean, on the positive side, uh, Peter's the one who calls out to Jesus initially. He's never shy, is he? Peter. He calls out to Jesus initially. He greets him. He perceives him. He has faith. He he walks on the water. Like even a step of that, pretty impressive. Yeah? Those are all on the positive side. Now on the negative side, well, he takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to fixate on the storm. He begins to sink. But don't miss this. Right when he started to sink, he called out to Jesus for rescue. And I think there's a little lesson in that. He didn't wait until he had fully sunk and was going to drown, and a fish came and swallowed him up like Jonah. And some of us do that. When things go wrong, we wait until they go rock bottom wrong before we turn to the Lord. Peter is keeping a quick account immediately. He's just starting to sing, oh, oops, oops, Lord, save me. He's attentive to what's happening in his life. He didn't wait until he had drowned. And so the storm here, what it's doing is is it tells us a lot about both Peter's faith and then areas he had to grow. Because Jesus sends them into the storm when he wants to teach them something new, not just about himself, but about them as well. He's trying to teach Peter about the great capacity he has for faith and also the room he has for growing and where he has doubts as well. Matthew Henry once wrote that Christ bid him, Peter, come, not only that he might walk upon the waters and so know Christ's power. That's part of it. He wants them to know Christ's power, but also that he might sink and know his own weakness. For as he would encourage his faith, so he would check his self-confidence. He's teaching Peter about himself. He's inviting him into a process of growth and discipleship. He's trying to help him grow. And in many ways, Peter's experience in this storm with Jesus shows him where he truly stands with the Lord. What progress he has or hasn't made. And storms do that. 
Storms pull back the curtain and reveal the state of our faith to ourselves and even to those who watch us. We learn, what do we really trust in? Who do we really think God is? I think when the storms of life come, we figure out and find out if we are trusting in our own strength to save us or are actually calling out to the Lord. Lord Jesus, save me. I want to quickly um, go back just a few chapters. I mentioned that there are three storms here in Matthew. We've mentioned two. Um, the other is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we have what some have called the parable of the storm. Jesus is doing all this to get them ready for what he's going to show them. And so in Matthew 7, uh, he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. In other words, when that storm came, it showed, oh, that house is on the rock. And you wouldn't have known that until the storm came because the houses just looked the same. Because here's the second house. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The storm came and it showed, oh, it's just, it's just sifting sand. There's no foundation there. It's not connected to the rock. When storms come, what will they reveal? What do they reveal? When they come into our lives, will they show that we have built our house on the rock or on the sand? The storms will come. We know that. <laughs> and they will show us our true foundation and what we are relying on to hold us up. As we think about this idea, these storms in the Gospel of Matthew, these storms that come into our lives, the storms within ourselves, uh, the first thing is to grasp the firm foundation, the only foundation is Jesus. This man, this, this marvelous man with power and authority, the Son of God, able and ready to save and I think we also just need to know and realize that Jesus will respond differently to the storms in our lives. We should not be surprised by that. He will respond differently. When storms come, when, not if, sometimes, thanks be to God, he does what he did uh, when he was in the boat. He just stands up and dismisses the storm. And every now and then, Jesus does that. When we are in trouble, when storms come and we cry out to the Lord, he says, oh, good, boom, gone. All is well. <laughs> All is at peace. Tranquil waters. He says, peace be still to us and into our lives. And we love when he does that, right? That, that's, that's the response we enjoy. A storm comes out of nowhere and Jesus just fixes it. But sometimes or usually... The storm is there because the Lord wants to show us something about himself and something about ourselves. He wants to teach and grow us uh, through the process. And I really appreciate this week. I listened to an old sermon from Tim Keller. It's from 1991. So like before he was a thing, essentially. Um, and he's looking at this passage 
and says sometimes Jesus gets rid of the storms and sometimes Jesus raises our level of maturity to meet the storm. Like this incredible moment with Peter where he walks out on the water. Jesus shows us how to walk through the storm. He shows us how to walk over the waters, but he doesn't often quickly get rid of it. This wasn't happenstance here on the Sea of Galilee. It was purposeful. Jesus wanted to teach and train and mature and deepen the disciples. He wanted to reveal to them something new about himself and help them grow in their faith. And he does the same thing in our lives. Uh, Today, this morning, is our fall kickoff Sunday. Um, And always at this Sunday, I kind of, you know, you just kind of turn the page and you look ahead uh, for the school year, the year ahead. And I just wonder, man, what is God going to do this year? Unfortunately, I'm pretty confident there will be storms he will send us into. Storms he will send you into in your life. Storms he will send us into as a congregation. And he does that to teach us more about himself, more about ourselves, uh, so that we can grow. When those storms come, what will they reveal? Are we rooted to the rock? Or is our foundation sand? How will he use the things that we would never invite into our lives for our good and for his glory? How will we look at Peter and, and learn from his both his faith and his lack thereof. Because here's the, the lesson I get from Peter here. It's, again, it's not here are three steps to walk on water. <laughs> what I get from Peter <laughs> is that what we're supposed to do is keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. And when we take our eyes off him, we slip and things slip. We're called to focus on Jesus. When the storm rages, when we're confused, when it is dark, when, man, we're like, how is this even happening? Peter's example is to fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Keep your eye on him. And so my prayer, actually, I was thinking about what would I pray for our church this year? Well, it's from Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says that we would run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.